0: Squawk Pod and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today in our podcast, Israel at war with Hamas. Hamas's surprise weekend attack, the casualties, and Israel's response.
1: It's not a normal war. It's This is a terrorist. This is, terrorist this is a terrorist war. war
0: and NBC's Kelly Kobiela on the ground in Tel Aviv.
2: There is this very weighty, very difficult issue of potential hostages held in Gaza, maybe as many as 130, if you believe some of the reports. The geopolitics at play,
0: from Iran to the US to Ukraine and Russia. New York Times foreign affairs columnist Thomas Friedman.
3: The long-term danger is that uh, it is discovered, of which there are a lot of indications, that uh, this was, a, in a sense, a combined operation by Iran and Hamas uh, in order to stop, uh, in its tracks, the uh, budding um, normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel.
0: And what it all means for business, how the conflict affects oil prices, plus what happens to the hundreds of multinational companies with operations in Israel author and political advisor Dan Senor.
4: Every major tech company you know of has a major operation in Israel. In past conflicts, operations didn't stop. Companies didn't pull out their operations. I don't think uh, anything changes.
0: It's Monday, October 9th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Israel and the world are still in shock today, three days after Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel on Saturday morning. The Israeli Defense Forces are fighting back with airstrikes in Gaza after Prime Minister Netanyahu declared war on Hamas. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant urged on Saturday that Israel will win this war.
3: Israel will win this
0: war. At the moment, the reported death toll stands at around 1,200 people, with 5,000 others injured. Here at home, the United States Defense Secretary announced an order for U.S. military ships and aircraft to move closer to the eastern Mediterranean, on alert for expansion of the conflict. And President Biden has declared support, unwavering support, for Israel as the violence escalates.
5: The United States stands with Israel we will not ever fail to have their back. We'll make sure that they have the help their citizens need, and they can continue to defend themselves.
0: Now, in addition to the tragedy, The global concern, as you'll hear, is what Iran's role in the Hamas attack might have been, and the capabilities and strategies of Hezbollah, an Iran-backed armed group in Lebanon on Israel's northern border. NBC's Kelly Kobiela is on the ground in Tel Aviv, and she caught
2: up our Joe, Becky, and
0: Andrew on the conflict. Good morning, Kelly.
2: Yeah, good morning. A pretty rapidly changing situation. Still getting new information really by the minute. Just a couple of seconds ago, we could hear the air raid sirens sounding once again here in Tel Aviv. And we've now confirmed that in the past hours, at least three rockets have fallen on three sites in the south. There are reports of some rockets uh, falling in the greater Tel Aviv area as well. We haven't yet been able to confirm that, but there are some casualties involved in those strikes in the south. Uh, The Israeli defense forces say they, they hit HUNDREDS OF HAMAS TARGETS IN GAZA OVERNIGHT, uh, AND REALLY A DIFFICULT SITUATION THERE FOR CIVILIANS. THE GAZAN HEALTH OFFICIALS SAYING THAT THEY'RE STRUGGLING TO REACH THE WOUNDED, SOME 2,700 WOUNDED THERE, NEARLY 500 KILLED, AND POWER HAS BEEN CUT TO uh, THAT AREA SINCE THE WEEKEND. Now, ISRAEL HAS WARNED CIVILIANS TO GET OUT OF THE WAY OF ANY POSSIBLE HAMAS TARGETS, BUT IT'S REALLY DIFFICULT IN THAT, in that AREA. IT'S A VERY SMALL AREA, JUST 25 mile-long strip with more than 2 million people packed in a very urban um, environment and no borders are open in and out of Gaza. Um, Here in Israel, we are hearing this morning from the defense minister and really you can hear the anger uh, in Israeli officials just from his statement. He said this morning, I ordered a full siege on the Gaza Strip. No power, no food, no gas, everything is closed. We are fighting human animals he said, and we act accordingly. The IDF says that they have called up 300,000 reservists. But the question is, what's next for Israel once they secure that territory in the south? And as a side note, we have been hearing about uh, skirmishes, some gun battles overnight between the IDF and Gaza militants in that area. The IDF spokesperson saying today that the military is prepared to employ disruptive solutions going forward to address the situation, but not elaborating, not talking about any possible details about a ground invasion. And of course, there is this very weighty, very difficult issue of potential hostages held in Gaza, maybe as many as 130 if you believe some of the reports uh, coming from militants inside gaza uh, some of them are soldiers many are civilians the question is how to get them out what to do next and i'm not sure that we're hearing a clear answer as yet from the israeli government
5: kelly before you go just what, what's it like on the ground in tel aviv right now and also you asked the question maybe you could provide the answer i don't know uh, you said what comes next in terms of just how long this plays out Given the density of Gaza, of course, it just seems almost impossible to think that this is something that could end anytime soon.
2: Yeah, I'll take that first one, uh, that second one first. It's This has the potential to last a very long time. That issue of hostages within Gaza is an extremely delicate one, especially when you're talking about civilians. We know uh, that women and children, we believe, are being held there. One man said that he traced his wife's phone uh, into Gaza. The, there are militants inside Gaza who have been um, sharing videos purportedly showing women and children uh, inside Gaza. And there are members of the military who are being held as well, just for a point of reference, uh, several years ago, back in 2006, I believe it was, an Israeli uh, soldier was held in Gaza for something like five years before finally being uh, released in in a prisoner exchange involving some 1,000 uh, Palestinian prisoners. So these things can last an extremely long time. And on top of that, you have this tremendous number of killed. Something like this hasn't happened in Israel really it's it's simply unprecedented so predicting how long this can now last and what the government does next is next to impossible a ground invasion would be incredibly difficult that is uh, urban fighting uh, in a dense area with more than two million civilians i think people here in israel are still in shock quite frankly the streets uh, are very quiet. You would normally see traffic jams here in Tel Aviv on a Monday morning. We saw none of that today. Uh, I think people are, are are trying to just kind of reset and figure out what's next, not to mention uh, the people who are still unsure how their loved ones are doing. There's a lot of that.
5: Kelly, we want to uh, thank you uh, for that report. We want you to stay safe, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again very, very soon. We're going to hear from The New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman, so much to uh, break down with him about what this means in the Middle East region, what it means with the relationship uh, between the U.S. and Israel, what it means between the relationship between Saudi potentially uh, and Israel. Uh, this was, uh, you know, a, a great a, this is a great tragedy on on so many levels. But when you think about even where that that Saudi Saudi relationship was going, it was in part based on what the Saudis thought was the strength of uh, Israel. Now Israel looks weak in some ways, and now do they have to come back? What does it mean to the United States and uh, that relationship? What does it mean, by the way, to our own government shutdown? Does, does, do things change here because of what's happening there in terms of funding uh, funding Israel? We had issues about funding Ukraine. So I think it's just the whole thing is obviously... in,
1: in, in Iran looms large. And, and Iran it, it, looms large over all of it. It doesn't. You know, Saudi's sort of a... You know, they're, no, they're not friends at all. They're sort of a, I don't know if you call it a enemy of my enemy, but, so in, in that regard, but it's such a complex place. And, and you know, Israel is surrounded, except by, uh, in the yeah. West. And, you know, the Journal points out Hezbollah is, is north. They're supported by mm-hmm. Iran.
6: That's part of the reason we've sent a warship there to the Eastern Mediterranean to try and um, make sure that Lebanon doesn't get involved in this as well. There's something like 150 missiles that are aimed at Israel from Lebanon and the concern would be if Israel goes all out, you hear talk of them not just ending this in Gaza but going beyond, and if that goes all out, how does that spread in the region and beyond?
1: You know, Iran, I mean, we know that it's a a terrorist state, hence the the horror at the possibility of, of a nuclear Iran but they get closer and closer we see they ca- are they capable of that of anything are they capable of anything I mean that's that's the most horrifying thought maybe in this day and age are they're capable I guess we need to assume that that you can't and then you know I don't know they had six billion dollars um, that had been frozen it, 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 this planning supposedly started in I guess August but it, the it's a, the world's a dangerous place. There's no that, and you point out the house, and the, the house could probably would be doing something you would think, funding or, or otherwise. I think, and I think Israel,
5: Israel has been a, has been a bipartisan issue. Yeah. Uh, for the U.S. But the question is, you, you need to
1: have there are pockets of speaker in order you to, need to have, have a sp- You need but there are pockets even in the house of people that did right. not want to help. But you Israel. need to and and a we're a almost anti-Israel in, in, in the house. Some, some factions. I think there's there, there are several. But Well, I think the other the, thing on is on these, the some of there. these demonstrations we're seeing around the world and even in this country that are just beyond the pale of, 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 of us being able to understand what, what's happening and how you could possibly be demonstrating on the side. I, I mean, I understand the disenfranchised, the, you know, the Palestinian issue is never, I don't know if that ever goes away, but there, there's clashes. There's clashes from there's both sides uh, on, on these demonstrations. Isn't th- that shocking? Be.
5: No, it's a disgrace. But you know, it and is. it's
1: around the world there isn't and cheering and uh, just it's it just a, how many different. Uh, these are the same emotions everyone felt: just absolute horror and, and sadness and anger, right? At, at what's happening and shock, I think too. I, I know that and how many story, there's there's thousands and thousands of stories that uncover you know guy talking to his daughter and then she says you know we're on our way out and then the last message she got or he got was we're going to die and hasn't heard from her since so it's just frightening and grandmothers hostages and children and it's not a normal war. This is a terrorist. This is, terrorist this is, this is terrorism. This is terrorism. That's
5: what it is. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was saying before we started the show, I have cousins, I have family there. And the thing about it is, it's like a 9 11, but almost like five or ten times uh, more intense insofar as it's a country of eight, eight plus million people. And you have 700 people, at least 800, now we're talking about 1,000 people who've already died and people who are, so everybody, do you remember when 9-11 happened in New York, so many people here knew somebody. Right. If it didn't, you know, you we knew a family did, yeah. member, you knew, there it's like that, but everywhere.
2: Right.
5: And it, it's at, at an intensity that I think is even deeper. And so this is really one of
1: those, one of those sort of watershed moments, unfortunately. And we know the retaliation is going to be swift and and I would think probably, Pretty significant the civilians in a place like Gaza.
6: How, hostage, how do you separate the, the situation? Is what complicates the retaliation. Well, how do you how well, do you
1: the wipe out, situation uh, and how do just, the, d- just the sheer density of the sheer of of density G- G- of G- civilians of exactly, and they're going to be caught up in this. Civilians on on both sides, yeah. right? Because you can't even identify them.
6: Hamas the is hiding in schools. It's hiding in mosques. It's the
1: hiding hospitals, in
5: it's, it's it's markets. It's what it's what they've done for years. Uh, we're going to talk to Tom Friedman about all of this. We've got Dan Senior coming on a little bit later. We've got a lot of folks who I hope are going to help us through this.
6: Oil prices climbing following this weekend's attack on Israel with renewed tension in the Middle East. And joining us right now in the energy markets is John Kilduff. He is, again, Capital's founding partner, also a CNBC contributor. And, John, we have seen prices up this morning, but nowhere near the highs that we've seen just in recent weeks. What, what does this mean for the oil market?
7: Well, it's a moment of pause, Becky. Uh, it's, it's a matter of what shoe drops next here. Obviously, it appears or it's being alleged that Iran's fingerprints are all over this. So as a result of that, you're talking about Iranian production, but then you're also talking about the Strait of Hormuz, uh, which lies right off Iran's coast, all coming into play here. So that's the worry for the oil market. The oil market has a great track record, though, of taking these horrific events in stride. Um, I point out several years ago, 2019, when there was an attack on Saudi Arabia's Abqaiq facility, which is the major export facility out of Saudi Arabia. It was a blip on the radar for the oil market. So let's see. The problem we have, if Israel is truly amassing 300,000 troops, they're certainly not there for show. And uh, so this thing could escalate. And that's what the oil market is holding its breath for right now, while being reasonable about the price reaction at the same time, in my view.
6: So what would you, where do you think oil prices are headed? I mean, it's impossible to know what happens from here. What would you be doing as a trader?
7: I think you have to position yourself for some more uh, potential upside here in the short term, again, given the rhetoric that's going to come flying out of this still uh, and whatever actions get taken. Uh, however, the good news is what's going what's to moderate that, Becky, is that with Saudi Arabia's massive cutbacks in production and exports these days, we have a nice size cushion. So you know, could we ride out an Iranian interruption? Could we ride out uh, a, a, a disruption of the Strait of Hormuz? Very likely. So um, does this get us over triple-digit crude oil in the near term? No. Does it push us closer back to 90, 95 in the near term because of nervousness and a security premium price that gets built into the price? Excuse me. Yes. So some more upside from here uh, because the economic concerns take a back seat to this geopolitical risk that is staring us right in the face at the moment. Okay,
6: John, thank you. Still to come,
0: foreign affairs columnist for The New York Times, Thomas Friedman, on Iran's role in the violence, plus Israel's next move, and the geopolitics hanging in the balance, including American aid to Ukraine.
3: To every one of the Republican uh, lawmakers talking about just cutting off military aid to to Ukraine, what, what the hell is wrong with you people?
0: Why Iran's Supreme Leader Khomeini and Russia's President Putin are watching very closely.
3: The United States had already come to Israel and asked it to send Hawk missiles to Ukraine. Israel refused because uh, of an eventuality like we have today. They, they, they felt they had to keep them in reserve.
0: SquawkPod will be right back.
2: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support
8: for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com/slash meeting demand.
0: Welcome back to Squawk Pod, where we're diving into the geopolitical implications of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Our anchors Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin leaned on the world's experts this morning to understand what could come next for Israelis, Palestinians, and the rest of the world.
6: Here's Becky. Israel has begun what its defense minister calls a full siege of the Gaza Strip in reaction to this weekend's attack by Hamas. At least 1,200 people have been killed in the violence. And joining us right now is someone who has covered the Middle East for a very long time, New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman. Um, Tom, obviously, this is a huge shock. What What are the broader implications to what this means? What
3: have you heard? Well, in terms of uh, your viewers, Becky, um, uh, there's a real potential here for uh, a much wider conflict. Um, uh, as horrific uh, is. the... Um, uh, this Hamas attack on, on Israel and uh, and now going to be, I'm sure, a major Israeli operation in Gaza. Um, I think the long-term danger is that uh, it is discovered, of which there are a lot of indications, that uh, this was, a, in a sense, a combined operation by Iran and Hamas uh, in order to stop in its tracks the uh, budding um, normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, uh, and the strengthening of the Palestinian authority, the competitive uh, uh, Palestinian power center uh, to Hamas that, that that rules the West Bank. And so as that becomes more apparent, um, that is going to be a, a huge source of tension where that goes between Israel uh, and, and Iran. Um, and the great fear is that uh, uh, Iran's proxy in Lebanon, Hezbollah, will open a second front uh, in northern Israel by rocketing um, uh, northern israel and if that happens um it's it's katie bar the door
6: i mean that's why the us is, is sending warships to the mediterranean to be there to try and keep something like that from happening but if it is confirmed that iran was the one that backed this that planned this to put this together which it certainly appears to be the case how does israel not retaliate and if they do retaliate what's the fallout
3: well um you know Israel and Iran have been fighting back a proxy war um uh in Syria and Lebanon uh now for you know the last 15 years at least uh Israel in the previous government um pioneered uh, a new approach to Iran and that was to tell the Iranians that um don't think uh just because you're not on our border uh, that we aren't going to find you and track you down and Israel actually began a a process of targeted assassinations of uh, senior uh, senior Iranian um, intelligence and defense people every time there was an attack by Iran's proxies on Israel. So um, I I think you could easily see that. Um, uh, You could see other things. I, I don't know. This is kind of uncharted territory. But from an Israeli point of view. They've got to do one thing at a time right now, and that is, um, you know, take on Hamas in Gaza. Figure out what to do there.
6: If the goal of this was to try and shut down further relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel, what's the Saudis' response to this?
3: Oh, uh, it's a really good question. You know, but their initial response was to issue a statement um, uh, very sympathetic to the Palestinians um, uh, and, and, in a way, hostile to Israel. I wouldn't take that as their long-term view. They're not gonna jump into this war on the side of Israel, but they're certainly not gonna jump in uh, on the side of Hamas either. I think the Saudis have to figure it out. You know, um, you know what I've been saying to um, uh, Israeli uh, contacts is that when, when, when an event like this happens, Becky, the first question I think you have to ask yourself as a country is, what does my enemy want? And now let's do the just the opposite. So I know what Iran and Hamas want. They want Israel to invade uh, Gaza and um, uh, get completely bogged down in house-to-house fighting there, um, which will have its own horrific cost uh, to civilians there and kind of equal the, the moral balance somehow You know, for Hamas. That's what they want. Um, uh, and that will radicalize the whole Arab Muslim world. I think the real challenge for Israel is how does it Um, deter Hamas, how does it respond to this attack, without um, uh, falling into the quagmire of Gaza, and at the same time, um, uh, actually quickening uh, the pace of negotiations on normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, paired with um, uh, progress between uh, Israel and the Palestinian Authority that governs the much more moderate Palestinian Authority that governs the West Bank. I I think that's I hope that will be the long-term dynamic um, because I think it's so important for Israel right now to ask itself, what does my enemy want? Let's do exactly the opposite. Tom, can
5: you speak to the relation between the United States and Israel in the following context? We've had a, a raging debate uh, in Washington and throughout the country about whether to support Ukraine, uh, how much money to send to Ukraine. I imagine there's going to be asks for money uh, for Israel. we At a time where we don't have a Speaker of the House and there's questions about whether the government here is going to be shut down, how do you think all of that plays?
3: Well, Andrew, it's a really serious problem, as I flagged in my column uh, over the weekend, which is that um, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, spends a good part of every day scrounging up um, weaponry uh, to support uh, Ukraine. We're talking about things as simple as 155 shells, you know, um, for its artillery. Uh, and Patriot missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, which the Ukrainians need desperately. Uh, I quoted in my column you know, Vladimir Putin as, as, as uh, licking his chops and saying, you know, if the flow of Western weapons uh, to Ukraine is cut off for a week, um, they're finished. Um, he's, gonna, he's just going to have free reign of the skies. And so can I just say to every one of the Republican uh, lawmakers talking about just cutting off military aid? To to Ukraine, that is one of the most shameful, embarrassing, disgusting things I I can imagine an American government doing in the history of our country. What 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 the hell is wrong with you people? We have aided these people in defending their country for a year uh, a plus, and you're just going to say, oh, that's too bad, not working. Going to going to cut them off. I I can't imagine what the implications of that would be for our relationships with our allies. Ah, uh, from Taiwan uh, to NATO, it is incomprehensible to me. It is incredibly shameful that anyone would even contemplate that. And so, how how do you relate that back to
5: to Israel? Because one of the There's other China. things that, that I imagine yeah. that's that's going to be the next piece of this.
3: Well, you know, Israel actually hosts the biggest stockpile of U.S. weapons prepositioned abroad of any country, I believe, in the world. So Israel will no doubt, as this war goes on, have to dig into that stockpile. That's a, the United States had already come to Israel and asked it to send Hawk missiles, these are old anti-aircraft missiles, to Ukraine. Israel refused because uh, of an eventuality like we have today. They, they they felt they had to keep them in reserve. So the, this dynamic between Israel, Ukraine um, and um, and the West, the United States and NATO is, is gonna come into play here. And Putin is watching very closely.
6: Tom, you said before that your message to this audience, it- Would be what? What? What do you think this audience can and should be doing?
3: You know, this is now between this is we're in this moment, Becky, in this story where it's just it's going to be about you know raw power against raw power. Um, You know, uh, I was talking to friends in Israel this morning, and and the mood there is oscillates between you know utter rage um, at what was done, seeing people's bodies dragged through the streets uh, in Gaza and real despair. Um, this was a complete uh, breakdown of Israel's um, deterrence and uh, and intelligence capabilities. Um, uh, it, it's just shocking to people. And so uh, to me, that what I try to do in my column is always think about, I always say in the Middle East, real politics happens not the morning after, but the morning after the morning after. Um, and so whatever Israel is going to do in Gaza to uh, Hamas, Um, The the fundamentally important question, Becky, is who can rule Gaza um, if not Hamas? Now, let's remember the only possibility—remember, Hamas threw out in 2007 the moderate Palestinian authority that governs the West Bank. Um, Netanyahu has spent the last 15 years trying to weaken, delegitimize, and undermine that Palestinian authority. So now the only natural alternative to Hamas is that Palestinian authority. So you're gonna see a real clash between those two policies.
6: We, we spoke with Colonel Jack Jacobs, and he said part of the problem with this is there are hostages that are all over the place and that they have learned that you know, the Israelis in the United States will do anything to get hostages back.
3: Yeah, I mean, Where does it's that a, leave you? It's a, a hellish, strategic dilemma. Um, Israel needs to uh, restore its deterrence vis-a-vis Hamas at a time when Hamas now holds um, an unprecedented number of Israeli and even evidently some American and European and Canadian hostages uh, that it was able to abduct as part of this process. I don't know the answer. I think it's just part of the hellish uh, decision that Israel is going to have to make of how do we restore deterrence, do it effectively, uh, possibly even supplant Hamas when they have 120, um, uh, most of these are civilians, some are Evidently, elderly and young children—they're uh, holding them, and it's—it's—it's a, it's, it's, it's a hell of a situation. I—I I, I don't have some simple answer. It's going to be very, very difficult.
6: Tom, we appreciate your time today.
3: Anytime. T's will be next.
0: Up next on Squawk Pod, a Wall Street view of war and the business ecosystem in Israel, with co-author of Startup Nation, The Story of Israel's Economic Miracle, its political advisor, and now Elliott equity partner, Dan Senor.
4: They basically had skirmishes every couple of years. Rockets would be fired. Israel would respond from the air, sometimes use special forces. Things would quiet down and everyone would go back to business. That doctrine is over.
0: What comes next, right after this break? You're listening to Squawk Pond with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross-Sorkin. Here's Andrew.
5: As we discussed this weekend's attack by Hamas on Israel, we want to expand the conversation, look at its potential impacts on Israel's thriving business community and Wall Street's view of the conflict. I want to bring in Dan Senior is a former foreign policy advisor in the George W. Bush administration. He's the co-author of the influential book about Israel called Startup Nation and the forthcoming book, The Genius of Israel, which is going to be out next month. Welcome to the table. Good morning. Um, St- start with the, the first question, which is really the, the last question, which is how does this end?
4: Well, you got to understand, first of all, this is like no war that Israel has ever been involved in. The, I mean, just on a proportional basis, if you look at the U.S., is about 40, size the pop, 40 times the size of Israel's population. So this is like 7, 10, 12, 9, 11s in Israel. That's how they're thinking about it, in one weekend. You could actually argue that it's even worse than that, because not only is the casualty count so horrifying. But imagine 9-11, and then after 9-11, there were terrorists still roaming around in the United States, something like 20 communities, towns, going neighborhood to neighborhood, and then the hostages, right? Then 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 the terrorists take these hostages, 130, 150, into Gaza. So I think Israel has made the decision that for about 20 years they've learned to live with Hamas on its border, as awful as that was. And that they basically had skirmishes every couple of years, 2008, 2009, 2014, May 2021. You know, rockets would be fired, Israel would respond from the air, sometimes use special forces, things would quiet down, and everyone would go back to business. That doctrine is over. Israel, after this weekend, is basically saying we can no longer, we, you know, Israel left Gaza in 2005, Hamas took over in Gaza in 2007. Israel says we've tried being out of Gaza for the last couple of decades and just trying to manage Hamas's. You know coexistence there, it's not practical anymore. And so Israel, the Israeli leadership's view is, <laughs> Hamas's political leadership needs to be wiped out, and their military capabilities need to be wiped out. And to your point, what that looks like, next few weeks are going to be pretty bad.
5: But what does that look like, both in terms of what the next couple weeks look like, given the density of Gaza and and where uh, where Hamas is? But then play it out, not just over the next couple weeks. Play it out. You know where does Iran fit into this picture? Where does Saudi fit into this picture? Where do we fit into this picture
4: so Israel is not obviously trying to to um, inflict collateral damage on you know casualties human, c- human catastrophe on the on the Gazan population, but as you said it 's the most it 's one of if not the most densely populated geographies in the world, so there will be massive i believe uh, tragically civilian casualties, especially the way Hamas positions the civilian population, which is they they put offensive armament capabilities next to daycare, childcare centers, schools, hospitals, to sort of invite uh, uh, these attacks into the civilian areas. You know, Israel will try to avoid it. It will do its best. But this is a war, which is different than the strategy you saw this weekend. What was most jarring, I've got to say, Andrew, what was most jarring about this weekend was that there was clearly a a strategic decision made that not only were they going to send these 1,000 terrorists into Israel, but they were going to systematically rape, slaughter, kidnap children, capture children, grandparents, women, and document it all. I mean, you've all seen these videos that have been flying around social media. They're, they're systematically documenting it. So why? Why would they do that? I mean, one, you start to see the glee with which they are sort of celebrating the tormenting and the, and the, and the butchering of, of the, these Israeli civilians. But I also think it was strategic. It was a psychological operation. It was designed to break the will of the Israeli people, to humiliate them, and I I, I think... But it also,
5: therefore, opens up the possibility that in retaliation, the the Israelis may very well feel quite comfortable uh, attacking places where, unfortunately,
4: civilians may very well be. It, will, it would never be the, the design of the Israeli strategy or the objective of Israeli strategy. If you go back to previous conflicts in Gaza, Israel's always gone out of its way to avoid. So they give warnings to communities. They're even doing it now. They're warning civilians, get out of this area. The war's about to get intense. So they're trying to avoid it. It's not part of their strategy, and it never will be. Um, but, you know, this is... This, this strategy used against Israel is, I, I think there was a sense in Tehran, there was a sense in Gaza, there was a sense with Hezbollah that Israel was divided over these last few months, and they thought this was the time to strike because Israel had been so divided domestically, politically, and I think the psychological warfare was to capitalize on that, and I think it's going to backfire. Does the, I was the going to say, opposite does
6: effect. this unite?
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, Andrew mentioned this this book I have coming out about the resilience of Israeli society, and it's... People underestimate how united the country is. So you look at these domestic political squabbles that have been hap- happening over the last nine months, and they think, oh, Israel's divided. Israel's broken. The moment Israel is attacked, the way it has been attacked, the moment Israelis feel vulnerable, the moment Israelis feel defenseless, the society comes together in ways that I don't think you would see anywhere in the world. And that's what's happening. And I think that is the great miscalculation by Hamas.
1: Speaking of divided countries, and I'm not saying that our. Problems had anything to do with anything, but our problems right now do have something to do with, with funding for Israel, for with uh, a, a united response to all of this. We've got our, our what, what do you, We have no house.
4: Yes. Yeah. This- when, 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 when you think about Tehran, when you think about Iran, which was it appears to be the architect of this whole operation. You think
1: they knew we got problem?
4: Yeah, and they're saying it publicly that they hosted a meeting in Beirut a week ago where the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps was present, Hezbollah was present, Hamas was present. I mean, that's when they greenlit this operation. So Iran was in the middle of this. So one, Iran, what does it want to do? It wants to slow down, if not completely kill the Israeli-Saudi normalization process, which had been moving fast. It had been moving faster than even public reports had captured, and so they they, they felt that they had a shot at doing that. Then they see dysfunction in American politics. I have no doubt that they read into the dysfunction in American politics. And they read into the dysfunction in Israeli politics and the division there, and they thought it, it's sort of like a, a perfect s- storm. I think they're most concerned about the Saudi situation. And then the timing, the symbolic timing of doing this on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, which, which will you inflict s- a You say most concerned about the, the Saudi yeah. deal. yeah. What do you think this does to that? Well, I think the calculation was that there was a fear of the by the Saudi leadership the Iranians believed that if they if Israel cut a deal with Saudi that didn't in some way make major concessions to the Palestinians it would pose a risk to the Saudi leadership so if they could heighten tensions if they can sharpen tensions between Israel and the Palestinians on the eve of a deal being you know inked right. it would make it harder for Saudi Arabia to do it even better if they can inflame the region in a war it would basically you know, basically shelve a deal. And do you think that it has now been shelved? No, I think this is an important test for Israel right now. Part of what attracted Saudi Arabia to Israel, one of the reasons Saudi Arabia has has drawn closer to Israel in the last few years, A, because Israel's the technological superpower of the Middle East startup nation, B, because Israel's a military intelligence superpower, and C, because of Israel's geopolitical strength around the world this weekend tested the, the military and intelligence piece. There was a military and intelligence breakdown in Israel. And I think the Saudis are, are probably thinking, wow, like this may not be the juggernaut that we thought Israel was. So Israel, it not only does it have to respond because its population wants Israel to respond. I mean. You have people not only being called up to reserves, you have people who aren't even being called up to reserves who are running to bases saying, I'm here to serve. So the Israeli population wants to respond and is all in, but Israel also needs to send a message to the Saudis. We are still the military intelligence juggernaut that you thought we were. We had a major screw up these last few days but watch us respond and we will restore your confidence. But
6: you respond, it's, you're listening to two things. Like, you don't want to respond and make it a multi-pronged war, but you have to respond. How do you do that? Right, so this
4: is, look, these next few days are going to be really complicated. So, A, they have to respond to Gaza. They have to take out, this whole idea of coexisting with Gaza with Hamas is over. So getting rid of the political leadership and getting rid of the military capabilities of Gaza, that's one piece of it. The next question is, do you deal how israel does with deals with iran right, but they don't assume that this is doable like that, that you can actually
5: the first piece you that you can you can rid you can rid gaza you, gaza of hamas that you can
4: you can right i mean ha- I, I you right, well you could you could rid gaza of hamas the question is then who's in charge so 2000 keep in mind the fatah the palestinian authority which is in power in the west bank used to run the gaza strip hamas drove them out 2006 2007 after israel left the Palestinian Authority was in charge, Hamas drove them out. So, if Israel drives out Hamas now, you know, a couple million Palestinians are still living there. Who's in charge of them? Is Israel, is Israel going to reoccupy Gaza, which is what its life was before 2005? Israelis don't want to
5: do that. We're in so. overtime. We're going to have to get you back. One last final question. The high tech community, the venture capital community, all of that that is in Israel right now, what happens to that?
4: I think it. it Stays. It remains. If you look at past conflicts in Israel, no matter how hot they've gotten, there was always this question. You have over 400 multinational companies with major innovative innovation centers in Israel, R&D centers. Right. Every major tech company you know of has a major operation in Israel. In past conflicts, going back to the first Gulf War, when there were Scud missiles landing in Israel, operations didn't stop. Companies didn't pull out their operations. I don't think uh, anything changes. If anything, I think it strengthens the energy of that community because keep in mind, most of the people who populate the tech scene there are themselves soldiers or have served in reserves or will serve in reserves and have a tremendous sense of national pride. Dan Senior, thank you.
0: That's the podcast for today. Thank you for tuning in. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys.
7: How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.